we are going to look at chapter 3. There's some very strange and interesting acts there, but that point us to our greater Redeemer, and we're going to see that in just a few moments. So look at, uh, if you would, at chapter 3. Just to recap, chapter 1 hit us with the bitter providence of God in the life of one particular family, Naomi's family, as she had left her land, lost her husband, her sons, and one of her daughter-in-law had turned back, and so now she's left with one daughter-in-law, and that is who the book is named after. It is Ruth. But there's also sweet providence as well. Uh, God's providence, His sovereignty, His control over our lives at times physically will taste bitter, but His ultimate end is sweet. It may seem like darkness, but God's promises bring light. And uh, the end of chapter 1, there was sweet providence as well. The famine in Judah broke, and Naomi could go home, and Ruth committed herself to come with her. And so we see at the end of chapter 1, they return, and then that glimmer of hope where it says that they returned at the beginning of barley harvest. And we talked about how that was going to be very, very significant. Had they returned kind of after the harvest time was over, there really wouldn't have been no way for Ruth and Naomi to care for themselves, and that would have held a, a whole nother layer of uh, problems for them, and could have they had to commit themselves to an indentured servanthood type of lifestyle, and all sorts of things that would come with it. And so they kind of get there at the end of barley harvest, and then in chapter two we see mercy in the sovereignty of God, and that mercy starts to break through enough for Naomi to see it. Remember in chapter one, Naomi basically says. God has left me destitute. He has done, all but said, He has done evil against me. He has worked bitterly against me. And really, she's in a form of what we would may consider uh, just a desolate depression. She is totally uh, destitute with how her outlook of life is. And though we may have never faced her exact circumstances, we have all had those moments where life feels dark, overwhelmingly dark, to the place that we make no plans, to the place that we just sort of wait, to the place that we're just waiting on God to end the, these things for us. And we all have experienced that and know people that experience that. But in her despondency, it kind of starts to end. And her long night of desperation ends and she begins to exalt God at the end of chapter 2. Well, why did she do that? Because Ruth... This now God-dependent woman meets Boaz, a God-honoring man, and he blesses her physically. We, long story short, she ended the week uh, last week kind of gathering grain, and we kind of pictured it. Though we view this as sort of a romance, imagine she's out on the ground having to pick through the grain herself. It's probably windy that time of year. She's probably got dust coating her face from uh, gathering those things. Her fingers have been worked, and she's gathering. Pro women don't sweat, but if they could, she, she may have been, you know, along those different ways. And so she has been working, and in that work, she finds or meets Boaz, and he extends even in that, just imagine the sort of bizarre meeting place that that was for uh, a blooming romance. So that's kind of what we picture something different, but that's really more how it was. And he blesses her, and we know that she comes home at the end of chapter 2 with what would be said to be somewhere between 28 to 30 pounds of grain that she returns home from. And I kind of imagine Naomi, okay, I'll 
picture it this way since I'm imagining. Kind of her sitting, sulking, wherever she's living, just kind of just being there and just looking out, maybe thinking about her husband and her sons and just what is life. Maybe she, wherever she's sitting, I'm guessing it's not a large house and she's looking at the walls and just distraught. And Ruth walks in the door with not a handful and not a basketful, but a sack full of grain. And all of a sudden, Naomi just, her attention, she sits up, how, where did that come from? Whose field were you in this week? And all of a sudden, Naomi's, her, her character, her nature, her, her whole demeanor starts to change. And the one that said, God has treated me evil, kind of arises and says, wow. And, and we'll, in fact, let's pick up there as we begin to read our text. Look at the end of chapter 2. Look at, um, look at verse number 20. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And so Naomi praises God. She goes from saying, he's done evil against me to, wow, he has not forgotten the living ones that trust him or those that have died. She's referring there to her husband and to her sons. And so she praises the Lord. Naomi kind of speaks to Ruth about this and she finds out who it is. Oh, that's Boaz. Well, he's a Kinsman, And we find that Boaz was not just a kind man, but he was kin to Ruth. And the same way we discussed this morning, the fact that it is important that God thinks of us, but not just that he thinks of us and is mindful of us, but that he is mighty enough to do something about it. It wasn't enough that Boaz was kind. We'll see that in a moment. He had to be able to do something about it. And because he was family, he could. And so Naomi changes her thought from just, I'm going to sit until I die and she springs into action in, in chapter 3. Look at verse number 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he had done eating and drinking. I'll just pause there for a moment. That's an interesting point. She knew these men well. Verse number four. And it shall be when he lieth down, thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, that just very simply means eaten, drank. It's not referring to being drunk there. It says, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. So he's let, kind of imagine he's worked down there throughout the day, though he's a wealthy man and though he has these different things. He's down there laboring physically too, and he sort of lays down to sleep, exhausted by the kind of the fruit of his labor of the day. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. 
insomuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of, of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near, thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. And we will stop there. We'll finish the rest of the chapter in just a moment. But let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord, we come to you now in this particular chapter looking for signs of our Redeemer. And we're looking uh, to see you through this passage. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. And we ask that we would see it here through your servants and through these that found hope in you, in your sovereignty, in your providence, and in your control. And we thank you for it in your precious name. Amen. I want you to think about this little phrase as we get started tonight. I'm going to say it this way, strategies of righteousness. And what I simply mean by that is righteousness is simply a zeal for doing what is good and what is right. A zeal for doing what is appropriate when God has ta when taking into account God's sovereignty and His mindfulness and His mercy. And then we act in that in righteousness. What is a how is it appropriate for me to act based on who God is? And then simply strategic, I just mean there's intention and purposeful planning. There is a pa passive righteousness that we can have in our lives where we simply try to avoid evil as it presents itself. But strategic righteousness means we kind of go out of our way to do what is good. Have you ever noticed the difference between, you know, you, you pick up something that someone dropped at the store? That's just sort of a, a passive righteousness. I just, I just do this because it presented itself to me. And then there's, there's something that you can go out of your way. You can plan for days and weeks ahead of time to try to bless someone by doing good toward them or just simply an act of righteousness toward God. And we're going to look at some things tonight of how the hope that Naomi now had, the hope that then was shared with Ruth, and the hope that Boaz had toward these things, because he's going to glean some blessings from this as well. And the hope that they had led them all to what I will call these strategies of righteousness, these acts of goodness. They didn't just let life come to them. They took it on them to do good. Galatians 6.10 says that as we have opportunity, do good unto every man. And so it, it, there's more to our Christian life than just when I can do good and it comes to me. It says, go looking for those opportunities. Search out the opportunity to be righteous and to serve God. And so what does it mean when a God-saturated man, a now God-dependent young woman in Ruth, and a God-exalting older woman, now all filled with hope in the sovereign plan of God, how do they react to that? And we're going to see tonight that, they, that all three of them kind of react in different ways, but all three reactions would be appropriate and are appropriate for us in our lives when we see God's sovereign control and plan over our lives. We don't just sit back and say, well, God's in control, and so we will just let things happen the way that they happen. There's a trust that must come, sure, and there is a submission to God's plan, but a hope-filled life is one that acts and lives out righteousness for God. One of the lessons that I learned from chapter 3 is that this, and you can say it this way, it's going to sound like a Disney phrase, but it's far deeper than that. Hope helps us dream. And what I mean by that is hope helps us dream righteously. 
Hope helps us look to the future. Hope helps us see ways that we can serve our God. And it's not some sort of just Disney phrase, well, if we have hope, anything you dream can come true. It's not, that's not what it's saying, but if we have hope in God's sovereignty, it means that no matter what happens when I wake up tomorrow, I can serve my God. No matter how bad life gets, the hope that I find in Christ means that I can be one with Him in my relationship with Him. And it's hopelessness that leads sometimes us into sin. Hopelessness needs, leads us into idleness. And that's where you find that people have to lie and steal and seize some sort of pleasure of the world because they're hopeless and they feel that they can't get anything for themselves without acting out themselves. But a hope-filled life thinks up ways to do good. A hope-filled life ventures out into life with virtue and with integrity. And based on the sovereignty of God, the confidence in sovereignty of God, it gives us a thrilling impulse to live for Him. And so tonight, let's look very quickly at these three people and their reaction to a hope-filled life trusting in the plan of God. When they understood this is the plan of God, so I have hope, how did they react? Let's look number one. The first one that's introduced to us is Naomi. Verse number one says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? So Naomi all of a sudden changes. Remember at the beginning of chapter one when she was hopeless, she was trying to turn Ruth back. In fact, she said, Go back to your other gods, little g. Go back to your idols, basically because my God has nothing for you. And now, filled with the hope of the sovereignty and plan of God, she is trying to take care of others in her life. She's trying to care for the one physical family member that God has left Naomi with on this earth. You know, one of the terrible effects of depression or discouragement is the inability to move purposefully and hopefully into the future. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? And I'll, I'll be frank and honest, I've experienced that in my own life. There are moments where I can suffer with anxiety and discouragement and depression sometimes that overwhelms and sometimes we're fearful of that word or we think something clinical or something other but there are things that affect our minds and our hearts and our physical bodies that discourage us to the place where have you ever noticed that when that happens there is no real plan there is no real this is where i'm headed spiritually this is my goal for this new year spiritually. This is my goal for this week and how I want to serve my God, or this is my goal for my family. When we're suffering from that discouragement, there is no plan. But all of a sudden, it's significant here in Naomi's strategy that she has a strategy to begin with. That in and of itself speaks to the change in Naomi's heart. Her heart has been changed by hope, and now not only not, not is she just not sitting around saying, oh, woe is me, God has done everything bad to me. She sits upright and says, what can I do for my family? In this case, Ruth. And in a way, what can I do to help the plan of God in my life? And so her reaction, and you want to write it down or jot it down this way. Naomi's reaction to hope is action and care. Her reaction to hope was action and care. Action in that she formed a plan. Care in that it wasn't a self-centered plan. It was about Ruth. 
Notice again in verse number one, she says, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? That's confidence and security, and in, 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 just to be frank, in a husband is how she thinks this plan is going to take place. And we're not really given a whole lot of instruction as to whether or not this was a great plan or a perfect plan or a God-laden plan, it's, but it's a plan. And I don't think that she's just a meddling mother-in-law here and trying to play matchmaker. She truly sees hope, and she wants to carry on in the light of what God is doing in her life. We're going to see a very deep part of that in just a moment and how she can pass on her family's name through uh, Ruth and Boaz. And look at verse number two. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee. Get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down. And he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Now, I don't know about you, this is not the way that I would typically plan a matchmaking moment in time. Uh, this, maybe it would start with a conversation or meeting on Facebook or something else first. But Naomi has a direct plan, and she is, in a way, excited about what she is trying to do to help the cause of God. You know, one of the reasons that we have to help each other hope in God is that only hopeful churches and only hopeful Christians plan and strategize. Let me say this carefully. I wrote it down because I want to say it carefully. Churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality and they just go through the motions year after year after year. But when a church feels and sees the sovereign kindness of God living over them, moving, and hope starts to thrive, and righteousness starts to come within that church, simply just the avoidance of evil is no longer the concern, but actively reaching out into the community and into the world. That's the sign of a hope-filled church. And a church and a group of Christians and a body of people that are filled with hope are ones that are not just letting the world come to them and just happening as they can. There are ones that, in a concerted effort together, strive to change those that are in their lives, those that they have contact with, those that they can reach out toward, whether it's in their community or whether it is across the world. When we have hope, we want to serve God. And that's what Naomi experiences. She now has hope, and she wants to be a part of what God is doing in her own life. I ask you tonight, how excited are you about what God is doing in your life? You know, there's a scent of anxiousness, in a way, to Naomi's plan. There's, there's a, a little bit of a sense of rush, don't you think? Uh, Ruth comes home with a bag of grain and says, I met Boaz today. And she says, oh, here, do this. Go down there. Meet him in this way. And maybe you'll get married. It's like, can you imagine what Ruth was thinking at this? Whoa. You know, he's, he's closer to your age than he is to my age, is what we expect at this point of Ruth. And he said, why don't you go down there and do that if he's such a hunk of a man? You know, why don't, why don't you head down there and do those different things? But, you know, there is an urgency to what Naomi needed to do. And let me give you a little bit of explanation as to why. You remember that they had returned without a home. They had returned without land. 
They didn't inherit, women at this point did not inherit what the men left behind. They were cared for by other families, and the male relative of the family is the one that inherited those things. So all the things that Elimelech had are gone at this point. And they return home literally with nothing. And returning with nothing, they're not going to have the opportunity to go out and, and file and get a career like we may in today's world. They're not going to have those opportunities. And so if much time goes by, Ruth and Naomi are going to all of a sudden have needs. And as they have needs that they cannot fill, they're going to incur debt, indebtedness to others. And as they incur that debt, they are then not going to be able to pay it. And in their day and in their culture and their law, if you have a debt that you cannot pay, you become indentured to that debt and can be either used by whoever you owe the debt to or sold into slavery to recoup that cost. And so though it seems Naomi is rushing here, like, wow, let's get you married off, girl. Like that's, that's kind of the way that she's acting towards this. Naomi realizes that their life is in danger. Their livelihood or the way that they experience life is in peril. Because they don't get to decide who purchases them. And they don't get to decide whose household they head into. And when she finds out that Ruth has met Boaz because there was a bigger deal than just being sold into slavery. And that's where we're introduced to this thought of the kinsman redeemer. And why is it a big deal that Boaz is kind and he is kin? The word for kinsman there is goel or the obligations of it are described all throughout Scripture. For time's sake, we won't go back into all of them, but let me read you a few. The Goel, his duties could include redeeming a relative from slavery. If the latter had been uh, obliged to sell himself into slavery, he could purchase them from the original or from the owner to repurchase the property of a relative who had uh, to sell that property because of poverty or because of a debt so he could buy back the property that Elimelech once had to receive the restitution of life or, uh, for someone that is injured. But there's one that's significant. In fact, we have time. Look, if you would, at Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we'll see a really big part of why it's a big deal that Boaz is kin to them and why it's a big deal that they have someone that can save them from the doom that was going to come because of their poverty. So uh, not a passage we probably turn to often, but... If you can find it there, Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'd like for you to see it there in verses 5 and 6. And we'll be back here in the next week or two to look at some more details of this. But look at verse number 5. It says, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. So here we have Ruth. Ruth is married to someone and he dies. According to their culture and law, she could not marry just some random other man. What could happen? It says, Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And we'll find later that it's extended past just brothers. It could go to uncles or uh, married uncles or an uncle's son. And it kind of extended there. Who is the closest kinsman? And why was that important? Look at verse number 6. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name, may not, uh, that his name be not put out of Israel. You can go back to Ruth. Now you see all of a sudden why Naomi's getting excited. It's not just that she can be redeemed from slavery. It's not just that he has a way to provide for them physically. 
but her namesake, her husband, who she dearly loved, and it was an honor to be part of the nation of Israel. That's how you would make a claim as a child of God at that point, as part of the nation of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, she sees a way that her name can be carried on through this marriage. By law, if Boaz and Ruth are married, their son carries the name, actually, of Elimelech and of Ruth's dead husband. And so you see why she's urgently wanting to do this, to protect her own life, to protect Ruth, to protect her line. So it's important. But the strategy that she comes up with is odd, to say the least, wouldn't you say, as you look at that. But in a way, it makes clear sense. Her motive is clear, obviously. She says, we want to provide Ruth a way to be saved from this circumstance of life. And surely Ruth and Naomi had talked a little bit about the precise conversation that Ruth had had already with Boaz. And remember how Boaz had said, stay in my field, don't venture to other fields, I'll protect you. My men servant won't touch you, they won't get anywhere near you, you will be safe here. You will have as much food as you want here. He says, and I'm going to extend, and she says, why have I found favor? And he says, because you have found grace, because you have trusted under the wings of God. And that's a phrase that you'll need to remember as we walk through this. And so we see Naomi's strategy or her action based on hope is action and care. Let's look at the second person involved here is Ruth. Look at verse 6. And she went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid her down. And so she obeys, or she shows, in a way, submission to this plan. And so, in Ruth's mind, when she had hope, here's her reaction. Naomi's reaction to hope was action and care. Ruth's reaction to hope was humility and dependence. And the same should be true of our lives. When we see the hope of God, we should want to be actively involved in serving Him. We should care for those that are around us. But like Ruth, we should be humble and show dependence on God Himself. So she has willingly gone in. She, she does these different things. And now, let's, let's take a moment and think about what she's supposed to do. Because it only makes sense. Now, when you just read it quickly, it's kind of like, what kind of weird thing is going on? Middle Eastern custom thing is going on here. But it, it makes sense. Look at verse number 2. Uh, again, and let's just walk through what she just did. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. So he's been working. Wait for him to finish working. That part makes sense. Look at verse 3. Wash thyself, therefore. That part also makes sense. To make an impression, you want to be clean. She says, anoint thee. Put on oil. Smell nice. Put on thy raiment. Put your best clothes on to impress. And that makes total sense. And then notice it says, get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. That was wise on Naomi's part. Why? So that Ruth would have Boaz full focus and attention. If he's been working all day and Ruth bursts in and says, Will you marry me? He's going to say, You know, let me uh, have a burger and some Coke first, and then uh, we'll decide after that. And then he would have her ushered away as some crazy woman along the way. And so Naomi wisely says, wait till he's done with those things. And then in verse number four, and it shall be when he lieth down, thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. Why would Naomi suggest that Ruth do that? 
so she doesn't go to the wrong man, because that would have been terrible and awkward too. I kind of imagine, it being, of course it's dark, there's no lights around, and you kind of think back to uh, Rachel and Leah, and I don't know how you marry the wrong person, but Naomi is taking all, all things into consideration and said, we've got to get this right. So she says, mark where he is. Once he falls asleep and he's not moving, she says, uncover his feet. Now, this is where we may start to think, what is, what is going on here? Like, because we know that commands of the New Testament are commands in the Old Testament. You're supposed to be righteous and pure. And all. What is Naomi commanding here for? Well, I don't know about you. When I'm laying down their tradition, their custom, these men had long robes, and when they would finish working, it's the same robe that they had worked in. They'd lay down. They'd literally roll their feet up under the end of their robe, tuck in, and go to sleep. I don't know about you, depending on the time of the year, especially right now, if I come into your bedroom in the middle of the night and I uncover your feet and just stand back and wait, (laughs) eventually what's going to happen? Most of us are going to wake up. And so this is no weird thing that Naomi's suggesting. She's saying, don't go shake the man out of his sleep. She's giving her a suggestion. Roll back the skirt, the hem of his garment. That's going to stir him and wake him up. And then she gives another command. says, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what to do. We see that, that Ruth laid down kind of crossways, is what we kind of picture at the end of his feet, to show humility, to show I'm not here to attack you, I'm not here to rob you, I'm here in submission to ask you and to request something of you. So what Naomi has commanded Ruth to do makes total sense. All of it really does. Now when you read it quickly, you may think, what is going on? But truthfully, it's a good point. And Ruth follows all of these things to a T, but then she goes one step further. And it's in what she says. And it's significant for a certain reason. Look if you would in verse number 8. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, which simply means startled, from his feet probably being uncovered, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So here she is sitting. He's probably trying to tuck his feet back in, just trying to sleep, not trying, trying to not come all the way out of being startled and wake up. And he said, who's there? That's the Hebrew. <laughs> Who art thou? Who is laying at my feet? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. And now here's something again that we could read quickly and say, what in the world is Ruth doing? This is risky or risque. Could she not be perceived as being, remember, she's the stranger. She's the foreigner that's just come from out of town. And Hebrew Israelites had hefty laws about things like this or uh, temptatious women and different things like this. So she's taking a risk in a way of being uh, misinterpreted. But what she says has significance. Notice, if you would, it says, Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And again, reading quickly, you say, what is going on? There's two other places in the New Testament that that particular word for skirt there is used. The corner of a garment. If you have a little reference portion in your Bible, it may have a little definition that it refers you to. A garment corner or a wing of a garment. There's two other places that this particular word is used in the Old Testament. It's used once in Ezekiel 16, verse number 8. God describes taking Israel as a young maiden for his wife. He says, and I passed over you for the age of love. He said, I spread my wings or I spread my skirt over you and covered you. But the other place that it happens is in Ruth chapter 2. And it's interesting who says it. Look at verse number 12 of Ruth 2 and you'll see the other place that this word is used. 
The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord of God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. The word there for wings is the exact same word as where it says, cover, spread thy skirt. In other words, he's saying cover thy wings. She's not asking for anything immoral here, and she's not being anything risque. She simply is saying, quoting him, he says, you have found rest under the wings of God. And now Ruth, in proposing for marriage, says, I want to be covered by your wings. Spread your wings of security around me. In fact, in a lot of Middle Eastern customs and some Jewish customs, you even see it in some Hindu customs, there's a a custom at marriage where the groom would wrap one of his own garments around the waist of his bride to sort of picture she is now in my protection and in my care. She has given herself to me. And that's the sense that, that we're seeing here. That's the request that Ruth is making. Cover me, protect me. She's still trusting her God, but now she's submitting to God's plan for her. And how do we react sometimes when we are asked to submit to God, to rest under His wings and the shelter of His care. I can't help but see a little portrait of my own Redeemer in Boaz, who is merciful and who is kind. And think of the audacity of this particular moment. Think of the awe that is going on in this particular romance. Ruth has just proposed to Boaz, the servant, who now she was the servant or the maiden of Boaz, the servant proposed to the master, the worker to the boss, the woman to the man, the poor lady to the rich uh, man, the widow to the very eligible bachelor, the Moabite to the Israelite, the foreigner to the citizen, the shamed to the esteemed. That's who just proposed to who. And it is a picture of repentance when we come to our Savior, who is our master? Who is the great God of the universe? Who we are poor and wretched asking this rich, healthy king of the universe to redeem us. We come as the widow dead in our sins asking Christ who is alive, fully eligible through life and his righteousness and his purity and his sinlessness. We are asking him to redeem us. We come as the Moabite foreigner, the stranger, asking the God of Israel, the citizen, the one that is pure and holy in his blood, to redeem us from our sins. We are the shamed asking the esteemed. And it is a beautiful picture because of Boaz's reaction to what Ruth says. And we'll close there quickly, if you would. Look at verse number 10. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. See, Boaz is thinking to himself, why is this young girl interested in me? We know that Boaz is at least middle age, probably older by this point. He's saying, why, why is it this way? And verse number 11, And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. So he fully accepts her. But then notice verse number 12. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Boaz has a young woman at his feet asking to marry him. And his response to hope is this, integrity, purity, and mercy. And our response, our response to real hope, 
as Christians should be lives of integrity, lives of purity, and lives full of mercy. Because he says here to her, he says, verse 13, Tarry this night, wait, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do uh, the, kins- the part of the kinsman to thee, then, I, then will I do part of the kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. And so he says, there is one that cl- has more claim on you than I do. And in reality, our Redeemer is the same way. But Jesus purchased us in a far different way. Jesus could look at our lives and say, sin has a closer claim on your heart. Sin has a deeper lay hold of your life. I can't just take you in. I can't just say all is forgiven. I can't just say it's over. I have to purchase you. And sin's not going to deal with us in some righteous, holy, pure way. It's going to destroy us. And this closer kinsman to Ruth could have treated her any way that he wanted to. He could have abused her. He could have mistreated her. And so there has to be an element of fear in Ruth's life as she waits throughout this night. What is going to happen tomorrow? But Boaz does not leave her waiting. In fact, in verse number 18, he says, Then... Uh, or excuse me, in, in verse uh, number uh, 17, as it works down there. It says, These six measures of barley gave me, for he said unto me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. So he still continues to provide. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know, uh, uh, excuse me, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. So you see Boaz's initiative. He says, I'm going to take care of this right now. And Jesus Christ came to earth for us in the deepest, darkest hour of human uh, history and in our sinful humanity. And he gave himself to purchase us from one that had a close hold on our life in sin. And Boaz treats her here with integrity, with purity. He doesn't abuse the request here, but he does so in mercy. And in finishing tonight, I want us to think about how and why. I wanted to wait for this, but I'm not going to. I wanted to wait till next week. Look at chapter 4 as we finish. we got another minute or two. Look at chapter 4, verse number 17 of Ruth. Why is it that Boaz could extend such mercy? It says, And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name. Ruth, spoiler alert, Ruth has had a child. I'm not going to tell you if it's Boaz or the other kinsman, but we'll figure it out next week saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now here's something interesting. Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nashon, and that man particularly uh, was one that was with Moses as they were in exile. So the timing works. And Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz. So Salmon is Boaz's dad. And our final portion of Scripture I want you to look at tonight is in Matthew. We're going to be back here in a few weeks. Matthew chapter 1. We won't read all of the uh, genealogy here of Christ, but there's something interesting about Boaz's family. Don't get confused by the spelling of names here. This is simply Greek transliteration. New Testament's in Greek. The Old Testament's in Hebrew. So the names are just slightly spelled different. Look at verse number 5. Remember the man named Salmon that begat Boaz? Notice what it says. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. It's a changed spelling. Anybody know the other name? Of Rahab. 
Rahab the harlot, Rahab the foreigner, Rahab the enemy of the people of Israel. That was Boaz's mother. And Boaz understands what it is to live in a family to whom mercy has been extended. And Boaz looks to Ruth and says, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> he says, I, I look at you and I know what it's like to have a foreigner, to be a foreigner, to be the son of the enemy of God, but for God to extend mercy. And because of that, I'll extend mercy to you too. And so a product of God's grace in our lives is that we extend grace to those who need grace. That we extend grace to those who are the enemies of God. That we extend grace to those that are considered afar off and in darkness. And when our lives are filled with hope, we will take action and want to be a part of what God is doing in our lives. We will care about those that are around us. And in humility, we will submit to God's will, dependent on Him, living lives of integrity and purity. And like Boaz, because mercy's been extended to us, we will extend mercy to others.